Whenever I do marriage counseling ahead of uh, marrying a couple, uh, I always include some time to try to uh, prepare them for the fact that no matter how long they've been together, no matter how much they know about one another already, that after the wedding, inevitably, they will learn all kinds of things about one another that they did not expect. There will be all sorts of surprises, some small, some great, but they will find things that they were not prepared for. They will find out about things they did not expect. And it happens to every couple. Uh, I mean, I'm sure every hand would be up if I asked you, uh, did you find out something that you weren't ready for? Did something catch you by surprise when you became husband and wife? And I'm sure everybody would say yes. And uh, that's certainly true in my case. I mean, I had... uh, dated my wife for many, many years. Before we were engaged, we had a long engagement, so we had all kinds of time to find out things about each other, and still to this day, uh, we are, are surprised from time to time. It happens. That's part of, of married life. Um, and so I want to give you just a, a few examples of spouses being surprised um, by their, uh, their other spouse's behavior after the wedding. Um, this one person wrote into a column and said, I discovered shortly after getting married that my husband eats deviled eggs like a crazy person. He literally forgets to take breaks in between eggs to breathe. And he starts profusely sweating. My mother didn't believe me, so she made some for him for Christmas and got to witness the horror firsthand. Another wife wrote in and said, My husband dunks his Oreos, his Oreo cookies, in water instead of milk. I still don't know why, she says. That is pretty odd, isn't it? Then uh, this, this husband wrote in and said, Occasionally, my wife will just sit straight up in bed, dead asleep. The first few times, I thought she was going to get up and go to the bathroom or something, but no, she just sat there. And it wasn't until I tried to talk to her that I realized she was still asleep. It's a really scary thing. Um, my wife, about me, did not realize how um, I have this, this sixth sense to not know where anything is at any times. Uh, I can look dead on at something that I'm looking for, not know it's there, not see it, go ask her where this thing is, and inevitably she goes right to it, picks it up, points at it, and, and is like, really? You know, it was there the whole time. It didn't just materialize. Uh, that, that is something that uh, took her by surprise. She didn't know that I could do that with literally anything at all times, and uh, yes, I do. Uh, it's really something. So much so that Aiden has called that my superpower. He says, Daddy has a superpower. He makes things disappear, and then he forgets where they are. So... Yeah, it happens. There's all sorts of things that can take us off guard, that, that can surprise us about our spouse, you know, after we're married. Things we did not see coming, things we didn't expect. Sometimes those things are significant, and uh, it causes us to, to really have to deal with a lot of uh, unexpected tension and unexpected conflict. But there's always going to be things that take us off guard, catch us by surprise. Thankfully, When it comes to the bride we are as the church, our great groom isn't surprised by us. That's what we're going to be talking about today, the bride we are. 
We talked last week about the, the second aspect of the body, the, the fact that the church is the body, and the fact that we need to be unified together, that uh, yeah, we have varied gifts and varied experiences, varied talents, and, and individuality is a good thing, and Christ intended for there to be individuality in the body, and we need to celebrate that, but we also need to make sure that we come together as one. That's what we talked about last week. We finished up the, the component of the body uh, in our talk last week, and so now we're talking about the fact that the church is also the bride, the bride of Christ. And when it comes to the bride, the church, Jesus knew exactly what he was getting. He knew exactly what he was getting. He knew all about our future faults and our failures and our great lack of faithfulness. And he loved and accepted us anyway. He knew what he was getting into when he called us to himself. He knew what he was getting into when he went to the cross and gave his life to birth the church, to institute the bride. He knew everything he was getting. And yet he still went through with it. It is amazing love, like we sang about today. It's amazing love that our God and our King would die for us. It's amazing love that our great groom knew everything that he would find in his bride and had every right to say, oh, nope, can't do it. No, that's just too much. There's just too much to overcome. There's just going to be too many times they desert me. There's going to be too many examples of unfaithfulness and lack of loyalty. No, I'm out. He could have done that. He would have been within his rights, but he didn't do it. Instead, he went to the cross. He gave his life to allow us to be his bride. He called us to himself, and he still does every moment of every day. Isn't that amazing? Truly amazing? It is. Let's pray together, and then we'll look into uh, God's Word together, and we'll see a pretty dramatic picture of, of just how disloyal we can be as a bride. Father, thank You for Your Word. We're going to look into that in just a minute. I pray that You would clear our hearts, clear our minds, help us to be open to what Your Spirit desires to say to us. We thank You for Your great mercy and Your grace and Your love that You have lavished on us in the person of Your Son through the unimaginable suffering of His cross. It's only because of that that we can be the body of Christ. It's only because of that that we can be the bride of Christ. Those are incredible facts, incredible realities that are ours for for all of us who are in Your Son, who have Him as our Savior and Lord. And despite our incredible idolatry that we're so prone to and bent to, despite all the ways and times we are so unfaithful, He remains faithful to us. He remains steadfast in His love and His compassion. Help us to be reminded of of that today. Help us to be challenged today. Help us to be encouraged. And use all that we look at, all that we think about, all that is said, to draw us deeper into our commitment to our great Savior. And may we all collectively as His bride and as a local example of His bride here at Faith Baptist, may we be drawn ever deeper in our affection 
in our passion for Him and for the furtherance of His gospel. May we be drawn into greater unity. And may You accomplish in these moments all that You desire by the power of Your Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. In the Old Testament, there's a book called Hosea. And Hosea serves as this really incredible, striking, uh, in many ways controversial, picture of what is true not just of Israel that it directly is about, but what is true of us today as the body of Christ, as believers in Christ. What we see called out by God through His prophet and messenger Hosea, commenting on where Israel was in their relationship with God, also is true of us. It defines us. It marks us today. And we can certainly find ourselves in this really unfortunate example. And in Hosea... God comes to the prophet and he tells him, as you speak for me, as you communicate my message, I'm going to use you as an object lesson. And nobody really likes that. I mean, every, every pastor's family uh, just loves when the pastor uses them uh, as part of his message, right? Everybody just loves that. Not at all. Of course not. No, my, my children cringe every time uh, I start to mention their name. They, they wonder what in the world I'm going to say, you know, and so I have to be very careful on that. Uh, but imagine if, if you yourself were going to be the object lesson. If God came to you and said, I'm going to call you to do something uh, in your life that you're not going to want, you're not going to like it, uh, you're going to wish it, it didn't happen, but it's going to happen, and I'm going to use that, I'm going to use you and your experience as the, the living visual aid of all that you tell my people Israel. I mean, that's, that's quite a task ahead, that's quite a calling, and that's exactly what happened with Hosea. God came to him and said uh, this in verse starting with verse 2 of chapter 1, Hosea 1, verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And this wasn't the first son. She had this son, and then she had a daughter, and then another son. And God says to Hosea, I want you to, to take your wife Gomer, this prostitute that you've gone out and married, this woman of, of obvious promiscuity and unfaithfulness. I want you to intentionally pursue her, make her your wife, have children by her, and her unfaithfulness... Her lifestyle of prostitution, it's not going to stop. It's going to continue. And I'm going to speak through that, through her unfaithfulness to you, and even through the children that I'm going to give you the names for, which will be blatant comments, blatant examples, blatant judgment on where Israel is. I'm going to call out their unfaithfulness, their idolatry, through your children's names. Have a nice day, Hosea. I mean, what kind of a call to ministry is that? 
poor Hosea, right? I mean, goodness, I, I just can't imagine. Can you? I mean, here's God says, I want you to serve me as prophet. I want you to be faithful to the message I've given you. Okay, Lord, yep, I'm your man. I'm ready to go. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to say? Well, here, here it is. Go find a prostitute. Marry her. Have children by her. Have the children have names of shame. And uh, through that, I'm going to pronounce judgment and commentary on where Israel is. Okay. Wow. That's exactly what happened. And the, the first child born to them, um, his name was, meant scattered. I mean, God was saying by this child through his name and through Hosea's ministry and his life and through the visual aid that was his whole family, um, it means I'm going to scatter Israel. I'm going to judge Israel for their, their sinfulness. I'm going to judge Israel for their idolatry. I'm going to judge Israel for their lack of faithfulness. I'm calling them out. And his name means scattered because that's what's going to happen. You're pronou- pronouncing judgment. You're pronouncing captivity coming. Scattered. The next child's name was No Mercy. <laughs> How's that for a name? No Mercy. Then the last child was Not My People. So, I mean, those are incredible, uh, pretty profound names, right? I wouldn't recommend naming any of your children those things. I mean, could, can you imagine calling for them? Scattered! Um, no mercy, come here! Not my people, where are you? And I mean, everybody's hearing this. And Hosea is then connecting, I mean, his poor kids, they, they definitely would have needed some therapy, right? He's connecting the names of his children to Israel's wickedness. Every time his children come around, every time he, he's around them, and he's calling for them, probably very publicly. And then, hey, do you hear what I'm calling my child? Guess what? That's about you. Oh, really? Thanks. Quite a, quite a job Hosea had. But that's where Israel was. They were playing the part of the prostitute. They weren't faithful to their God in any way, shape, or form. They had chased after all sorts of foreign gods. They had prostituted themselves before these false deities. They had intentionally rejected their God, their King, the one who all through the Old Testament, all through their history, one of the things God said about Israel was that they were His chosen bride. That's, that's not something unique to the church, It's something that's applied to the church, but it's something that was said of ancient Israel. And yet, they were not a loving, loyal, faithful bride to their constantly loving, loyal, faithful groom and God. And so he's calling them out on it. He's reminding them of all the ways they have been unfaithful, all the ways they have pursued idolatry, just like any harlot would pursue other lovers. And even in that, God is merciful. Even in that, God is gracious. At the end of this chapter, he says, even though all this is going to happen, this captivity and this division, this scattering, even though I'm, I'm going to withhold mercy and give judgment in its place, even though you have said by your actions, you're not my God, and I'm going to say, okay, well, then if I'm not your God, then you're not my people. He says, but through it all, it's not going to remain that way. And even though Israel is scattered, even though right now they're not my people, one day they will be. I'm going to bring them all back and they will be a multitude of people under me, their God. God is merciful and gracious even in those times of judgment, even in those times when he he very powerfully addresses sin. 
And that wasn't the only thing on the matter. That wasn't the only time this was said. This wasn't the only aspect of, of Hosea's call. It would be great if after Hosea pursues Gomer, after he brings her into his home, after he makes her his wife, after they have children, it would be great, it would be a wonderful part of the story if she stopped her life of unfaithfulness, if she stopped her, her life of prostitution. Wouldn't that be great? But that's not what happened at all. This wasn't just something she did. This was who she was. This was the kind of person she was. Look at Hosea chapter 3 with me. Hosea chapter 3. And I want to draw your attention to verses 1 through 3. And I do have these on the screen if you need that. Hosea chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. And the Lord said to me, this is, this is Hosea actually narrating now, go again, here's the message God gave, the second message to Hosea. Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So this is not some other woman now, another random prostitute. This is the same woman. This is still Gomer. And so what we see here implied is that Gomer, while being Hosea's wife, being brought into his home, brought into his love, having children with him, did not stop her life of unfaithfulness. She still left him and went out and chased other men and gave herself over to other men. And God doesn't say to Hosea, okay, well, Hosea, you tried. You, you served me uh, in the way that I, I called you to. You brought her into your home, and, and you named the children what I wanted you to. I've used you for that purpose. You know what? You've been through enough. Just go ahead and cut ties. It's over. Move on from her. It's okay. Certainly, we would understand if that were the case, and man, Hosea probably wanted that to happen probably wished that were the case, but that's not what God said. He said, no, I want you to go back to her. Yes, she's being presently unfaithful. She is allowing herself to be pursued by other men. She's giving herself over to other men. It's active. It's continual. But I'm not done using that. I'm not done using this. And I'm not done using you. And I'm not done calling you to still be faithful to her, even though she is not faithful to you. I'm not done calling you to be loyal to her even though she is completely disloyal to you. Because Hosea, once more, I'm using you as my visual aid. You're my living object lesson because all that you are experiencing, all that you're going through, all that is true of Gomer is true of my people Israel that you are a prophet to. Everything that people see as they look at your home situation, everything that they see as they look at your horrible situation and your dysfunction is true of them. That's how they are to me. Even though I am faithful to them, even though I have pursued them, even though I am good to them and gracious, even though I lavish my love on them, it's just not enough for them. Wow. Wow. What would it have been like to be Hosea in that set of circumstances? It's just unimaginable. And yet that's what he was called to, and that's what he was faithful to. Not only was he faithful to Gomer, who did not deserve his faithfulness in the slightest, he was faithful to God and what he had called him to do, as difficult as that was. 
is unimaginably difficult. And what's up with this mention of them loving cakes of raisins, right? I mean, um, man, did, did God just have a thing against raisins? I mean, no scones for you, you know? I mean, I, personally, I really am not a raisin fan, so that would have been all right with me. But it is a little puzzling, isn't it? Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. I and mean, what's up with that? Well, it's an example and it's a connection of turning to other gods. That's what's going on there. I, I just have to bring that out and draw attention to that and mention that because otherwise it just seems way too arbitrary, way too random. Um, the raisin cakes mentioned here that, that the people of Israel were loving as connection to them turning to other gods, it's um, no doubt something that was used and, and eaten as part of um, sacrificial feasts in the temples of of idols. Think of the New Testament with Paul where he talks about certain meat sacrificed to idols and, and so he wanted people to abstain from that. Right? There's that, that whole connection there. Um, so these cakes, these raisin cakes, represent uh, worshiping at other altars and, and following idols and turning away from the true God. Just as Gomer rejected Hosea and turned to other lovers, people who were not her husband people that she was not called to. So that's the situation there. That's the other aspect of Hosea's ministry that God put before him. You're not done yet, Hosea. You're not done. Go, go find her. Go to Gomer. Go get her. Draw her once again. Draw her out of this prostitution. Draw her out of this unfaithfulness. Bring her back. And we see that she definitely has returned to an occupation of prostitution because of verse 2. He says this, So, once again we see his faithfulness, his obedience. So I bought her. I mean, just think about that. Here's his wife, who has not only left him to be unfaithful with just some random dude, she's returned to an occupation of continual prostitution. She is now owned by someone else. She's willingly, willingly enslaved herself. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lathek, which is about three bushels of barley. So, I mean, he had to diversify even to purchase her because of the amount Verse 3, and I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. And that, that's not saying, just stay with me for a little while and then you can go out and do whatever you want. That's not what he's saying. That's another way of saying permanently. That's just another wording for that. You're going to have to stay with me. This is a long-term thing. This isn't you just come and go. You've got you've to be mine. I've purchased you. Not only have I wed you, but now I have bought you. I've purchased you. I've given up resources to make you mine. You have to remain mine now. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. And so, so will I also be to you, he says. He says, Gomer, this has got to stop. You're mine through our, our union 
And now you're mine through my, my purchasing. I have redeemed you. I've gone to where you were a slave and I've brought you out of your slavery. I've redeemed you. I've purchased you. I've sacrificed for you. You're mine. You need to belong to me. You need to be faithful to me and know as I've always been, I will also be to you. Doesn't it seem pretty radical and drastic and unthinkable and unimaginable for Hosea to keep pursuing Gomer this way? I mean, it does, right? I mean, naturally, humanly speaking, it makes no sense. In fact, if Hosea had gone to even a godly counselor and said, hey, I need some help. Let me tell you what's going on in my life right now. Let me tell you what's going on in my marriage and my situation. I need some advice. I need some counsel from you. What am I supposed to do here? This is what she's, she's like. I mean, God led me to her, I have no doubt. God called us together. So I went through with this wedding knowing that there was going to be some, some trouble and some trial, and, and I thought I was ready for it. I thought I knew what I was getting into, but this is just too much. Not only did she leave me to be unfaithful with, with some other guy, she's returned to the occupation that I found her in. I've given her everything. I've given her my love. I've given her a home. I, I've given her a safe place, and yet it's not enough for her. Now she's prostituting herself. Am I okay to, to just cut ties and move on? And you know as well as I do, most counselors would say, oh, Hosea, you, you've done your best. You've given your all. You've done what God called you to do. You've, you've done what, what He has asked you. Certainly, He doesn't expect you to keep putting yourself through this torture. Certainly, he, he wouldn't expect you to keep abusing yourself and allowing yourself to get manipulated and hurt and devastated this way. You know what? I think you're, you're okay. Let's just, let's just move on. Nobody would fault Him for that. And yet, it's not what He does. Hosea relentlessly, intentionally, lovingly pursues his promiscuous bride. And he goes after her, finds her where she is, reaches her right where she's at, pours out grace on her, brings her back, loves her, welcomes her back into his home. He doesn't ignore her sin. He he addresses it. We saw that. He calls her out on it. He calls her to, to live opposite of that. He calls her to make a change, to make a difference in her actions, her attitudes, her choices. Really what we see there is a call to repentance. So he does that. But through all of it and above all of it is just this incredible, radical, unthinkable grace and mercy and love and compassion. And isn't it Church, the bride, isn't it everything you've just heard and we've read together? Isn't it an incredible, powerful, beautiful picture of the gospel? Isn't that exactly what Jesus has done for you and for me? It is. It is. It's everything we, we did the, the songs about this morning. And can it be amazing love that you, my King, my God, would die for me? It's everything we are. We are 
Gomer. We are Israel that Gomer was a picture of. And we have this amazing groom that pursues us in faithfulness and in love and in mercy and grace relentlessly when he shouldn't, when it makes no sense to do. We have a great groom like Hosea who pictured God over Israel, pursuing them, loving them, bringing them back. And we have the same reality, church, in our great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's exactly what has been true of us, and it's exactly what the reality is for us if we are in Christ. And then in chapter 11 of Hosea, we see God's incredible grace once again on display and worded and pronounced and proclaimed. We see mercy. We see compassion. We see the heart of this amazing God. Here's what he says to Israel. Hosea 11, 8 and 9. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? Even though that's what should happen. Even though that's what they deserve. And by rights, that's exactly what should take place. But he says, how can I do that? How can I do that to you? How can I permanently do that? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Which were, by the way, two cities also destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah. When Sodom and Gomorrah were wiped out, these were two cities that were also destroyed. And that's uh, from Deuteronomy 29-23. And he's saying, I, I can't do that to you. I, I can't allow you just to be swept away. I can't allow destruction to be permanently over you. Here's what he says, My heart recoils. That's literally churns. My heart churns within me. You've got my stomach all in knots, is another way of looking at it. My compassion grows warm and tender. Wow. Isn't that beautiful? Verse 9, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. There's grace. There's mercy. There's faithfulness. There's compassion and love unlike you will find anywhere else or in anyone else. And as God was to the people of Israel, so He is for us in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. And please hear me on on this one I'm about to say. Listen, that does not mean that the unfaithfulness that Gomer exhibited, the unfaithfulness that Israel continually exhibited, and the unfaithfulness that you and I still continually exhibit is okay. That doesn't mean unfaithfulness is all right. This was not God just ignoring the sin of His people. This was not God just ignoring their idolatry. This was not God just forsaking and forgetting their incredible unfaithfulness. This was not God turning a blind eye or a deaf ear to all of their corruption and all of their promiscuity, their spiritual prostitution. That's not what this was. This was God saying, I will deal with your sin. I will 
bring judgment. I have to. I have to judge sin. I have to judge unfaithfulness. I cannot be God and not also be just to do that. But because I am God, I can be perfectly just and perfectly gracious and merciful at the same time. And that's what I'm going to do to you, Israel. And we see that fulfilled ultimately, perfectly in the person of our Savior, our groom, church, the bride, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we see on display with Him. Because at the cross, God's divine justice and mercy collided. And it collided in the person of His Son. And all of our unfaithfulness, all of our corruption, all of our promiscuity was judged as it had to be. But it was judged on Christ. All the wrath of our great God, our perfect, just God, fell on His Son. And what what God told the people of Israel here in chapter 11, when He said, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? He says the same to you and me for us who are in Christ. I won't give you up. I won't hand you over to my judgment. I won't give you up to my wrath. I won't give you up to the end result of all your sin, which is an eternity in hell, because I gave up my Son in your place. Because I handed over my Son to death in your place. That's why I won't give you up. That's why the promise of Scripture is your promise where God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. The reason that's true, the reason He won't, is not because we're just so good. It's not because that's what we deserve. It's not because God ignores our unfaithfulness. It's because it was all dealt with by the Lord Jesus. That's why we can know with certainty that that despite all of our failures and faults and unfaithfulness, we won't be forsaken. Despite the fact that we are the bride we are. Despite the fact that we are the bride we are. Here's the bride we are. You know this, I know this, but let's just remember this together. Let's be reminded of the bride we are. The bride we are. We are not desirable. Yet Jesus desires us. We have nothing of real value to offer. Yet... Jesus sees us as a priceless treasure. We are bent and broken. Jesus makes us beautiful with the beauty of His holiness. We are continually inconsistent and unfaithful. Jesus is constantly compassionate. And faithful. We, the bride, are naturally clothed in the filthy rags of our futile attempts at righteousness. Yet, Jesus comes to us and clothes us in the robes of His own righteousness. What a groom we have. What a bride we are. Despicable. Not desirable. Everything but beautiful. Not valuable in the slightest. 
And yet, our groom lavishes His love on us, calls us to Himself again and again and again, covers us with the beautiful royal robes of His own righteousness, His own holiness, His own worth. Here's what Isaiah 61.10 says, and, and we can echo this. If, if you're here today and you're in Christ, then, then this can be your statement. This can be your triumphant cry, your shout of praise. In Isaiah 61.10, says this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, for and my soul shall exult in my God. Why? For He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels." As Hosea went to Gomer and found her in the the filth of her sin and her unfaithfulness, and he grabbed her and he clothed her in new, fresh, clean clothing, and he lavished his love on her as he wrapped her in these new garments, so he welcomed her back into his heart, back into his home. He pursued her right where she was, despite the fact that she did not deserve it. The same is true for us. And so our God, our Savior comes to us and He finds us in the robes of of filth that we wear, the rags of our own self-righteousness, which is no righteousness at all. And He takes those off and He puts on new, fresh, pure, clean, righteous, shining, holy robes that we could never manufacture on our own and that we would never be worthy of wearing. And the reason He's able to do it, the means by which He he did that, by by which He does that, is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. The only reason we can be clothed in the robes of righteousness is because of what's true from this verse. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake, that's you, that's me, it's all of us together, That's the body of Christ. That's the bride of Christ for our sake. He, the Father, made Him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we, we the the unfaithful, we the promiscuous, we the dirty and filthy, we the covered in all of our sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Think about that. God the Father took His own precious Son who hated sin just as much as the Father did, who did not experience in any way sin just as the Father had no experience personally with sin, totally removed from it, totally other from all that is sin. He took that precious Son and actually made Him sin put all of our sin on Him so that before the Father, the Son appeared to be all the sin of the world, all the sin of all of us. That's why the Father turned away from Him at the cross. And He did all that so that you and I could actually step into the righteousness of God and be seen as righteous so that the Father would look at you and me and not see all of our unfaithfulness and all of our filth, but that He would see the innocence and righteousness and perfection and holiness and beauty and merit and standing of His own Son every time He looks at us. So when He sees you and me, 
He sees his sons and daughters entirely, perfectly. Not because we are perfect, because we are covered in the perfection of Jesus. And so what that means as as a result of all that for us is what is found in Ephesians 5, 25-27. And this is what I always make sure I spend a lot of time on with my couples that I counsel before we go to the wedding itself. I make sure that the husbands understand the incredible weight that is on them as husbands, the incredible calling they have. I mean, there's a lot for the wife too, but man, you'll, you'll see it, what the husband is called to do. Verse 25, Ephesians 5, husbands. So every husband's ears should be perking up. Husbands, love your wives, which we know we're supposed to do. Okay, yeah, I know I'm supposed to love my wife. But, but wait, there's more. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did he love the church? What was the measure of his love? What was the extent of his love? Look, it tells us, and gave himself up for her. Remember Hosea 11? How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? And I already made that connection for you, but I'm going to make it again. The reason we are not given up is because Jesus was. He was given up. Jesus willingly gave Himself up for her, the church, you and me. He went to the cross. Went to the cross to give us life, to give us love, to make us his bride. Verse 26 says that he might sanctify her. That's why he he did this, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy, set apart, sanctified, pure, and without blemish. And the only way the church can appear before her head, the only way the bride can appear before her groom, Jesus, that way is for Him to do what He did. It's the only way that's possible. Because He gave Himself up for her. Oh, church. The bride. That Christ would love us that much. That he would be willing to go to such lengths to make us his bride. That he was literally willing to die to make it happen. That he could say to all of us, literally, I love you to death. You know, we we say that phrase from time to time. That's one of those, you know, little statements that are made between loved ones. Oh, I just love you to death. What, do you really? No, of course not. (laughs) Not really. But one has said that and meant it. One proved it. One backed up that statement by action, put his feet where his words were, and that's Jesus. He literally did love us to death. It doesn't make sense on paper. It just doesn't add up, does it? I mean, think about where we were and what we were when Christ came to die for us. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrated His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10 says that we were enemies of God when Christ gave His life for us. I mean, we weren't 
something to, to desire. We weren't already on His side. We weren't already living in a way that pleased God. That's not what was true of mankind when Jesus came to redeem mankind. No, He came to people in the, in the very act of sinning and rebelling against Him. He came to people that were His enemies. That's who He loved. That's who He gave His life for. Just doesn't add up. And yet, we can all all who are in Christ, we can confidently say, along with Solomon's Shulamite wife found in Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, uh, another bride that was loved by a great king when by rights she should not have been, she said, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. You should read Song of Songs, and if you do, you'll find that She shouldn't have been loved by Solomon. It just didn't make sense culturally. It was kind of a controversial thing. She didn't match what everybody thought the ideal bride looked like and was like. And yet he came to her and he loved her. And she could confidently say that. And we can say the same thing, church. I am my beloved's. My beloved is mine. And as great as it is to know that Christ loves the church so much, and it is great, isn't it? Isn't it great to know Christ loves you that much? And it is great. Even though we're, we're far from, from being a worthy, desirable bride, we're far from that. And as great as that reality is, an even brighter reality awaits us. It's great to know that we have this love right now, right as we are. The bride we are, still getting the love from the groom that we have. It's fantastic. But a brighter, greater reality awaits us in the promise of the bride we are going to be. The bride we are, in all of our failings day after day, in all of our unfaithfulness, in all of our propensity towards sin, still, after all that we've received, all of the fact of our redemption, as great as it is, we still choose sin, right? Every day, and it's terrible. And so it's incredibly good to know that the bride we are is not the bride we stay. Because a bright promise awaits us, a bright reality, a future glory of the bride we are going to be. And that's exactly what we will talk about, Lord willing, next week as we finish up this series. I hope you'll make plans to join us for that. Let's pray. Father, thank You for... Your Word, thank You for the amazing, beautiful promise of grace and of mercy that we see pictured for us in such a radical picture of Gomer and Hosea. And though that was directly for Israel, certainly we can make the application to us today because what was true of Israel and what was true of Gomer is just as true of us today. We too were like Israel. We are like Israel. We too were like Gomer. We are like Gomer so many times. Oh, Father, forgive us. Oh, forgive us. Have mercy on us. Cleanse us from our idolatry. Cleanse us from our iniquity. Help us to be people that repent because repentance is necessary, it's required. It's not enough just to recognize Your grace that calls us to turn from our sin because of Your grace. May that be true of us. May that mark us. 
Thank you for pursuing us in the person of your son, the way Hosea pursued Gomer, the way you always pursued Israel. Thank you for all the promises we have because of Christ that you will never leave or forsake us. Father, because that's true, help us to live our lives in faithfulness to you. And you've given us the power of your Spirit. It's not up to us. We don't have to just try harder. We have to yield more. May that be true of us. May we be a picture of the beautiful bride that your Son Jesus sees when He looks at us. And I pray all of these things in His name. Amen.